Welcome to Rust Belt Abolition Radio. My name is Andres. In today's episode, No Walls, No Cages, we focus on the joint struggle for migrant justice and prison abolition. We speak with Abraham Paulos, Executive Director of Families for Freedom, an abolitionist organization fighting deportations in New York City. We also talk with Ali Wayne, an undocumented organizer based in Syracuse, one of upstate New York's Rust Belt cities. We close today's show with two first-hand narratives. One from Curtis, a local Detroiter whose family has been turned upside down by the carceral state and racial capitalism. And another from Harold Gonzalez, currently incarcerated inside Michigan's Kinross Prison. But first, here's Kif Syed with some news you may have missed. On February 2nd, prisoners in the James T. Vaughn Correctional Facility in Smyrna, Delaware sparked an uprising. Prisoners who took over a building and held multiple guards hostage made demands regarding education, rehabilitation, and budget transparency. On February 9th, U.S. President Donald Trump continued his anti-black, anti-poor law and order agenda, signing three executive orders expanding the power of the police for reasons of public safety and tackling a non-existent threat of rising crime. Near the end of January, Michigan's prison food contractor, Trinity Services Group, was penalized for over $2 million for unauthorized meal substitutions, delays in serving meals, inadequate staffing, sanitation violations, and more. Finally, Guadalupe Garcia de Rios, a 35-year-old mother of two with a felony charge, was deported to Mexico on February 8th after living in the U.S. for 21 years. Along with members of Puente Arizona, hundreds gathered in Phoenix that same day, attempting to block the Immigration and Customs Enforcement van transporting her and other detained immigrants. Francisco Porchas, organizing director of Puente Arizona, says that this deportation machine is, quote, a very well-oiled machine that President Obama built and now Trump is operating at 100 miles an hour. See news from the streets at rustbeltradio.org for links to these issues. I'm Maria, joining Kay Syed, and you're listening to Rust Belt Abolition Radio, an abolitionist media and movement-building project based in Detroit, Michigan. In this show, we amplify the voices of those impacted by mass incarceration and explore ongoing work in our movement to abolish the carceral state. That is, prisons, police, courts, as well as racial domination and capitalist exploitation. What does a world without prisons, police, and property look like? What kind of society becomes possible when we stop maintaining nations and neighborhoods in which specific populations become fundamentally criminalized? These are the kinds of questions that abolitionists ask. Prison abolition isn't just about letting go of an old form of solving problems, putting people in cages. It also entails reshaping the ways in which we relate with one another, in all scales. Now, we turn to Alejo Stark for an interview with Abraham Paulos. A. Maria and I spoke with Abraham Paulos, Executive Director of Families for Freedom, on the ways in which his organization works towards migrant justice and prison abolition. My name is Abraham Paolo. I was born in Sudan. I came to the United States as a refugee before the age of one. I grew up in Chicago during the, the 80s and 90s in poverty or what, what have you. I had contact with the criminal system. Not only that, but family members have been affected by detention and deportation. I was picked up in Brooklyn five years ago for a robbery that happened on my block. I ended up going through the system, the precinct, bookings, and it was in Rikers Island, is a city 
jail in New York City, and it was there that a fellow prisoner of mine had told me about Immigration Customs Enforcement having an office and the access that they had to the jail to deport non-citizens, you know, who were convicted of certain crimes or what have you. And so I was able to, to, to bond out. I was able to bail out thanks to the knowledge that this prisoner had and came out, looked for a lot of organizations to help out. Not a lot of organizations would due to the criminal conviction and due to the fact that I was a non-citizen. Families for Freedom was an organization that was there that helped me out with my case. And after a year of becoming a member, I've been the executive director uh, ever since. So it's been about five years. Can you tell me about the work that Families for Freedom does and how does it differ from other migrant justice organizations? I think what makes us different is that one, we fight by and stand by those that have been convicted of crime who were not born here. When we say we stand by them, I mean, we really do mean that because of our critique of the criminal legal system, a system in which 92 to 97% of people who are in front of a judge plead guilty. The second point that I want to make is about an analysis that we have. You know, we're abolitionists. We do not believe in detention. We do not believe in prison. We do not think that problem with prison situation in the United States is that there are too many prisons. We do not think that that is the problem. We think that the fact that there, there are prisons, and that is the problem. We think that this goes beyond getting citizenship, right? I don't think that in our community, citizenship is what folks really want. I mean, I think we come from a space in which, you know, our community needs to be free from the fear of deportation and detention. And one of the things I always say is that we didn't have a prison problem during slavery. Right? There was a reason for that. I can't even name a prison during slavery. So that analysis of really understanding that this is about resources for our community and for our people is really where we come from, and, and that's where we that's where we stand. You know, it's not a solution. Prison is not a solution to reach the lack of resources that we have in our community. Deportation is not a solution to an immigration system. That is the analysis that we really bring to it. I mean, we, we do believe in open borders, and we don't think that that's a crazy act at all, because if you are a U.S. citizen with a passport, and particularly if you have money and you're white, you know, you live in an open border world. There hardly is any country that would not accept you, maybe North Korea, Somalia. So folks are living in an open border world. It's just, it's not for everyone, and we question why it's not for everyone. Late last year, you moderated a phenomenal panel with longtime prison abolitionists Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Maryam Kaba, and Mujahid Farid that was organized by Critical Resistance. What does abolition mean to you, and what are the concrete practices that Families for Freedom engages to further abolition? I think abolition for me just really means that these aren't solutions, and their own existence, the fundamental existence of prison, is racist and capitalist. And so it's flawed. And so, like I said earlier, I was like, well, there were no prisons during slavery. And why were there no prisons during slavery? Because there was this economic industry that essentially, you know, black people were free labor and we were basically where they wanted us to be. So I think abolition really is about abolishing the fundamental premise of white supremacy and capitalism as a reason for anything, really. And I think abolition is really look at it in such a way in which we understand, like for me, it's about resources. So don't, don't tell me we need prisons when you don't give us food, housing, jobs. And then I think once we get those resources, then we can see if we need these things, which I, doubt, I highly doubt it. And, it. and it's also, you know, there are people living in an abolitionist world, you know, people that are walking around and don't have to worry about prisons like we do. They don't have to worry about police officers like we have to worry about police officers. 
right? There, there's no police officers in the Hamptons like they are in, in Brooklyn, you know? So that exists already. That reality exists already, but we're denied it. And why are we denied it? And that's because white supremacy and capitalism. So that's what abolitionist just means to me, is abolishing fundamental premises that are rooted in white supremacy and capitalism. And so how do we move forward with that? It is a long, hard road. In the beginning, the first conversations were around mandatory detention, saying we were against mandatory detention. And then it was like, okay, well, we want to end all immigration detention. And then we thought about it and said, well, aren't we throwing other black and brown people under the bus? And so, you know, we got to a place that basically said, look, we want no prisons, essentially. On the practical look at things, I mean, I think one of the things is, is that because we're abolitionists, we do not turn anyone away because of their criminal conviction. We don't care what it is because it really doesn't matter. Because if you have this analysis, particularly towards the prison industrial complex, you can't be an abolitionist and then run around and start saying, oh, well, we're not going to take folks that have these types of criminal convictions or, or violent convictions or what have you. That's one concrete thing that we do is that we do not have a hierarchy for criminal convictions. So anyone that comes to us will not get turned away for type of criminal conviction that they have. Can you also tell us a little bit about, you know, in relation to kind of what Families for Freedom does, you were talking about your different kind of analysis, right, race and class being kind of central, and freedom rather than citizenship being the kind of long-term goal. What possibilities do you see and challenges, I guess, in this historical conjuncture we find ourselves in? So I'll try to break that down piece by piece. Citizenship is not the goal for us, because we also understand that there are citizens here, black people who are citizens, brown people who are citizens, going through pretty much a lot. No housing, no food, no student loans, whatever, no school. So citizen hasn't really brought us access to rights and services like it should, right? And so that's never to go long-term or short-term. Yes, it's great if people can get citizenship, but really the only reason why we would get that is to be free from the fear of deportation. What is your response to folks that are pushing sanctuary cities now and working within the state? I get it. You know, it's cute. Right now, what I would say, real practically, people have to be clear about who the sanctuary is for. Folks are running with this term and they're being reckless and they're getting people in our community hurt. You can't be running around and saying we're a sanctuary city and we don't provide sanctuary for black and brown people when the police are still on the block or people with weapons. This is a division tactic because they're only going to provide sanctuary for a certain type. They're only going to save the ones that they want to save. They're only going to be a sanctuary for undocumented immigrants who don't have criminal convictions. The one thing I want to say is to get it real practical is I think there needs to be a clear definition of who is worthy in their eyes as sanctuary so that our community doesn't get hurt running around thinking that they're living in a sanctuary city when they're actually not. That's reckless. And to be weary about those that are calling for a sanctuary if they're not willing to, like, open up their home. Thank you so much, Abraham. Yeah, yeah, you guys say so. Alejo also spoke with longtime undocumented organizer, Ali Wayne. So uh, my name is Ali Wayne. Uh, I'm originally from Senegal. I'm an undocumented activist from Senegal. Uh, I work with a couple of groups, um, including the Syracuse Peace Council, the Undocumented and Black Network, Black Lives Matter Syracuse, the Black Alliance, Black Immigration Network, and I've been working on economic issues, economic justice issues, anti-war issues, and obviously migrant rights issues for a while. You're talking about the migrant rights struggle. What do you make, what do you make of the state of the migrant rights uh, right struggle today? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're in we're in real trouble right now. Uh, I think that the state of the migrant rights movement right now is just about as bad as it could be. Um, you know, over the years, you know, there's been this kind of struggle within the mainstream, you know, quote unquote reform movement, right? There's been a struggle between organizers at the grassroots like myself and a lot of other organizers who have been openly critical of this immigration system uh, in terms of, you know, talking about how the immigration system is part of, you know, sort of capitalist oppression and that, you know, we haven't been wanting to make compromises with either uh, Republicans and Democrats. And we've actually been able to do amazing liberation work, you know, through that in terms of, uh, I think, many of the policies that we did get that were somewhat positive, including the Deferred Action Program, were things that came out of some pretty radical actions. And it actually kind of became exhausting to see the cycle as it happened, because very often what would happen would be the more radical organizers would come in, speak to a politician, you know, tell them about sort of our radical tactics around sort of what to do and how to move things forward. That politician would turn around and tell us that we don't know how strategy works and we don't know how Washington works. And then, you know, we would say, well, you know, thank you for your input. And then we'd go down and like shut down deportation buses or infiltrate detention centers or do whatever the hell that we needed to do. And that would often lead to some slightly progressive push in the legislative battle. But because we became the sort of like bad immigrants, we would lose access and then politicians would turn around and take uh, credit for, you know, for sort of moving things forward. Unfortunately, the vision of the current immigration reform movement is, is very narrow. You know, it's about providing access to the most um, privileged and, and well-advantaged uh, members of our community. And I'm not saying, I'm not one of those, like, bitter activists who's just kind of like, oh, they don't know how politics work, and, you know, these are terrible things. Like, I'm, every single time, you know, some of us have access to more rights, I'm glad, even if it comes in the form of something like DACA. Um, but we need to realize the limitations of that kind of vision and the trap that it sets for us in terms of sort of dividing our community. Uh, I mean, right now, obviously, if I... If if I were someone who just received DACA and who didn't know about the broader struggles for immigration, I'd be very comfortable throwing quote-unquote criminal aliens under the bus in order to, you know, to, to, to be secure. If our struggle for liberation is only um, about our own individual struggle for liberation, then we all lose. And I think that's unfortunately what's, what's happening. Um, I think... Another aspect of this around sort of the racial justice aspect that um, is so dangerous is the immigration reform conversation is, has been mostly sort of a Latino issue, right? And so other communities, Asian American, black communities, you know, have been uh, oftentimes kind of left out. I think towards the end of the Obama administration, uh, some mainstream immigration reform organizations started to like remember that they had you know, black undocumented folks in their midst and started to sort of talk a good game about you know involving us. But there hasn't been a strong effort at listening to those other voices, especially black undocumented immigrants who oftentimes have the, the, the deepest critiques of the broader system and see the immigration system as 
an oppressive system that is part of oppressing people of color everywhere. You you mentioned you were you were born in Senegal. Um, how do you mm-hmm. see the history of colonialism and empire and the dynamics of the system, what we call mm-hmm. maybe racial capitalism, play out in your personal yeah. story and in the struggle for for migrant justice today? I've been thinking about this obviously for a while, and the more you analyze it, the deeper you get. The more you realize how colonialism and empire play out in these stories of migration. Uh, so, like I said, I was born in Senegal in West Africa, which, by the way, is the home of the Gore Islands, uh, which are the islands where uh, the, where slave ships uh, went from West Africa and were imported into America. Uh, so the Gori Islands were sort of like one of the key points in the transatlantic uh, uh, slave trade. Um, now, the interesting thing about African countries, right, is that they are uh, post-colonial projects. Um, you know, there's a lot of kind of nostalgia that African Americans have about sort of like, you know, going back to Africa and going back to the land of Africa. And the, the interesting thing about that is that most of the countries, you know, in Africa right now, they were carved out through colonialist histories. So even, you know, I can say, like, okay, Senegal is my home country, but Senegal was something that was carved out by uh, colonialist powers, you know. It, uh, it was um, basically a, a country that was the amalgam of, um, you know, many different tribes and ethnicities and created sort of this national identity of Senegal out of that. Uh, many of us talk about uh, sort of, you know, neocolonialism, which is the fact that still the major financial interests like the uh, IMF and the World Bank uh, are still basically plundering these nations through, you know, onerous debts and uh, through uh, the, the project of neoliberal capitalism. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of you can't divorce, you know, uh, migration, colonialism, and capitalism. You know, all of these processes are, are connected to, to um, the exploitation of black labor, you know. Uh, and that continues on into this country. Thank you so much, Charlie. Is there anything else you want to add? W- one of the things that I could potentially add is that... Um, I think those of us who have been grassroots organizers for a long time do have some ideas in terms of to, in terms of how to resist what's coming ahead. Uh, you know, for example, a lot of folks are talking about you know sanctuary right now, and only thinking about sanctuary in terms of legislation. But I remember working with a couple of grassroots organizers, you know, here in Syracuse a couple of years ago when things were really bad with border patrol. Perhaps sanctuary wasn't simply legislation, and it wasn't simply also. Uh, you know, stashing people in churches, but it was literally about creating networks of houses where uh, undocumented folks could hide if they were um, in deportation proceedings. And in fact, we called it the Overground Railroad because we live here in central New York, which is home of like the, the abolitionists. And I think those kinds of tactics uh, should be revisited now because I think that we are in a dangerous moment and I think that we all need to, to really be prepared um, you know, I don't mean to sound sort of too frustrated, but I feel like many of us who have been at the grassroots ultimately have been proven right in terms of our analysis. Um, but we are often shut out from uh, Democratic Party offices for 
our temerity, you know, for the temerity of basically asserting our, our humanity. Um, and I hope that folks who are mainstream immigration reform movements, as they unfortunately have to go through and experience the, the viciousness of the system, start actually critiquing the system as a whole instead of accepting its premises. I think that's the way to liberation. Uh, and I think that there are organizers out there who know how to do this. It's just about actually listening to them, but unfortunately there hasn't been a good track record in listening to these activists. So I have a lot of hope for folks at the grassroots. I have a lot of hope for the, the strength of undocumented organizers, but I'm definitely not going to sugarcoat it. Uh, we are we are in very dangerous, dangerous times, and, and we have to resist this. Thank you so much, Ali. Thank you so much for your time and for, sure. for your work. Now we turn to Curtis, a Detroit-area resident whose life and family has been impacted by mass incarceration. We join him as he discusses his older brother, who is now serving a 30-year prison sentence. The struggle of life like got to my older brother. And I remember one day in specific, I was like driving him home or something and he was just like, I can't do this shit anymore. And I knew exactly what he was talking about. Like he meant just like uh, life, like this whole society, like this role that he has to perform or fulfill. He was an intellectual too. So like anybody who understands the like faults in society has probably like, you know, gone there has like went there with life I just can't do this shit anymore you know so um he gets caught up and uh trapping like busting out the fucking bendo like um hardcore he went straight into it selling heroin um he had custos from fucking like 18 mile coming to the projects picking that shit up from him and what it, it was just like wild and like with me missing him so much who was I to like police him quite honestly like I was too young and like, I don't know, just whatever about it. So, yeah, he got caught up in that situation there. There was an incident where a few months down the line, he was arguing with his baby mom and shit in that uh, house that they owned. And um, she like busts him upside his head with like a frying pan. And it was like so dramatic. My mom was down in the projects and my brother calls her up and he's like crying. Yeah, she gets there, the ambulance is there, super dramatic scene, he's at the hospital. On our way there, he calls her and he's like super pissed for whatever reason. I think my mom wasn't there on time was what it was. It was wild, he had this like inmate demeanor. And so like my mom just kind of wasn't having it. She's like, who the fuck? She goes up to the hospital and um, she picks him up. He gets in the car and she lays it to him like nobody has ever laid it to him before his big ass was crying like and i'm sitting in the back seat biting my nails she's like everything i did for you the baby was born at this time um my mom had pawned two grand worth of her jewelry gold like rings to um provide for this child because that's what she she loved him she understood how difficult it was as a black man who just was released from prison, you know? So I understand how frustrated she was with him. 
so we get back to the projects, you know, he was released from the hospital. We literally didn't even put the car in park, and he hops out the car, and he strolls into the um, building complexes, you know, the, like, walkway through the building complexes. And I swear to you, it was like uh, someone walking into, like, the abyss. I was like, some he just walked into, like, an Amazon, and it's going to take, like, it's going to take a whole squad <laughs> to search for him. And I, really, though, that was, like, the last time I saw him. Today we close our show with an excerpt from a letter written by Harold Gonzalez, currently incarcerated inside Michigan's Kinross Prison Facility. The entire letter was published in the San Francisco Bay View by courtesy of the Michigan Abolition and Prison Solidarity Crew, MAPS. When Harold refers to the MDOC, he is speaking about the Michigan Department of Corrections. Men like me are the perfect patsy for the MDOC. We are supposed to take the abuse and make no waves. They pit our desire to go home against our desire for humane treatment. 90% accept the abuse, but the abuse throughout MDOC is reaching epic levels. Sure, on the surface, they have a system of checks and balances, but the checks don't balance the scales. They cover up the transgressions, so in essence, the checks balance the scales so that they ever favor big business. We need help. I'm shouting out from this 8x10 cell. Help us. Don't let them quiet our voice. Be an amplifier for us. Don't let what they are doing to us and throughout the MDLC fade into oblivion. We were not angels, but we don't deserve this. I cannot express adequately my appreciation and gratitude or the humbling effect that knowing I'm not alone in this has had on me. I'm thankful for the strength and inspiration that your support provides at the times when things get overwhelming. I will not run from this or hide. There are too many inmates that are counting on me to be their voice. And since that's where this started for me, that's where I'll be until the end. Thanks for tuning in. Check out our website at www.rustbeltradio.org. This show is co-produced by the Rust Belt Abolition Radio Team, Andres, A. Maria, Cave Syed, and Alejo Stark.